0: This morning, I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scriptures to the Old Testament book of Genesis. This morning, Genesis 14. Genesis 14 this morning. There are various natural laws that we would recognize to always be in effect. For example, the law of gravity. What goes up must come back down. Another example, the second law of thermodynamics. Things are always moving toward disorder. You can't unscramble the eggs. And I confess I don't have technical specific definitions for these laws, but you understand the point. Another would be the law of unintended consequences. And the law of unintended consequences is a phenomenon in which an action results that is not part of the actor's intent. The consequences of an action are unintended because they're unforeseen when the action takes place. Of course, that's the point of the word unintended. No one can predict every possible outcome of every possible action because you can't know every possible outcome into the future unless you are God and so for that reason we must trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not lean on our own understanding. We must in all of our ways acknowledge him and allow him to direct our paths. This is the life of faith as we've learned from the life of Abram in the book of Genesis. The songwriter put it this way, to hear with my heart, to see with my soul, To be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see, that's what faith must be. And the power of faith is following God's will, God's way, trusting him to take care of the outcomes, whether we can see them or not, whether we can understand them or not, whether we can predict them or not. And so from Genesis 14, I prepared a message titled, Abram and the Power of Faith. Let's pause briefly for prayer and then we'll look at Genesis 14 together. God in heaven above, we are so grateful for Jesus Christ, your son, our savior. And the very thought of him puts gratitude into our hearts as we recognize that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's because of Jesus' advent, his first coming, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father that, that we are either even gathered here today. And we look forward to his second coming, his return for us so that we might spend eternity giving glory to him. Lord, it's these thoughts that fill our minds and our hearts this morning. But now we turn to the Holy Scripture, to Genesis 14. And we look again at the life of Abram and the power of his faith. I pray, God, that you would enlarge our faith, grow our faith, as we trust your will, your way, while yet unseen. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll remember that in Genesis 13, Abram and Lot parted ways, Lot pitching his tent towards Sodom, that's chapter 13, verse 12, and Abram living in Hebron, that's chapter 13, verse 18. Now in Genesis 14, we read of the unintended consequences of those two very different choices. Look with me at Genesis 14, beginning in verse number 1, and it came to pass, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedor-Leomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the nations, or, or king of the Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these joined together at, in the valley of S- Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Well, that was a blessing to read, wasn't it? (laughs) Because I can barely pronounce these names and because it's hard to to picture what in the world is happening now in Genesis 14, let me explain. Genesis 14 gives us the record of the first battle in the Bible. In fact, this is the first battle in, in the record of human history. We might even call this the First World War. I would simply title it the battle, East versus West. The, the battle here is generally referred to as the battle of the four kings against the five kings. There were four kings of the east. That's what we read in verse number one. Four kings in the east, verse number one, and there were five kings in the west, verse number two. So think East, verse one, against West, verse two. The four kings of the east in verse one mobilized and moved against the five kings of the west in verse number two. This is east versus west. East is the offense, west is the the defense. And we have here coalitions of kings. The two coalitions of these kings and their city states met for battle in the valley region just just south of the Salt Sea or, or the Dead Sea. But there's a glaring omission in verses one through three there is no mention of Abram. Where is Abram in verses 1 through 3? Abram's completely absent in verses 1 through 3 because Abram was not at war. Abram was at rest. Abram was at peace. Abram was not involved in this battle. In fact, He was back in Hebron where God wanted him to be. Look back to chapter 13, verse 18. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. You might be interested to know that Hebron means fellowship. And at this point, it's important for me to point out the power of faith. When the world is at war, around you. The power of faith is not necessarily to go and conquer the world but to be at peace in the world. You don't need to go and fight every battle that is raging in our country or our culture. You can rest in the midst of the storm around you and the life of faith provides the power of peace in the midst of it all. That was Abram's experience here as he remained in Hebron, in that place of fellowship with God. My mind goes to Philippians chapter four. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that's our celebration this weekend, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The life of faith is more powerful than any problem you face. Isaiah 26, verse number three, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And while Abram was in Hebron in fellowship with God at the altar, chapter three, verse 18, the coalitions of of kings had formed around him and were preparing to fight each other. Look at chapter 14, verse number four. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the 13th year, they rebelled. So evidently, there is a standoff now for 12 years where the kings of the West, that's verse number tw- two, served Chedorlaomer before the uprising in verse number four. Maybe there was an occupation, perhaps there were sanctions, perhaps there were peace treaties or diplomatic summits, but alas, the coalitions were formed, verse, or, or letter A, and then conflict broke out, that's letter B, the conflict. It was the big battle of the east against the west. Let me pick up in verse number five. In the 14th year of Chedor-Leomer, the kings of, that were with him came and attacked the Rephim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim in Shava, Kirath-aim, and the Horites and their mountain of Seir as far as El-Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, King of Gomorrah, the King of Adma, the King of Zaboim, the King of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined together in the battle, in battle in the valley of Sidim against Chedor, Laomer, king of Elam, title king of the nations, Amor, fell, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elassar, four kings against five. And again, I, I, I would ask us if this makes any sense. It's totally confusing what is happening here as we quickly read these verses. But, but as always, conflict can be confusing. Verses 10 and 11, now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there. The the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. In summary, the five kings of the west, verse number two, they they were defensive. Thought they had a chance against the four kings of the east that were coming against them, the, the offense. and After all, the five kings of the west were defending themselves, fortifying their defensive positions and fighting to protect their homelands and their their families. And, And yet, contrary to their expectations, the five kings of the Jordan plain, that is the west, collapsed and retreated, running to the mountains there in verse number 10. I'll call this the collapse. So we have this epic battle of east against west the coalitions of the four kings against the five kings, the conflict occurs, the collapse of the the west. And if verses one through 11, as I've just read, were dramatized on the big screen with modern cinematography, we would be riveted to this action. This would be a major battle scene and, and it would be rated for its violence. But in reading these first 11 verses, as I stumbled to read through these unfamiliar names and and places, we we still lack a meaningful plot. Asking or answering the question why? What's the point of the Bible's record of of these, these events? And that comes to us in verse number 12. Look at verse 12. They also took Lot. Abram's brother's son, his nephew who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Folks, the historic narrative in verses one through 11 is is recorded to prepare for us, prepare us for verse number 12. And Lot, the nephew of Abram, is now a POW. He's captured by the kings of the east. I would offer you number two, The backslider, Lot. Lot. Now, the last time we saw Lot, he was dwelling in the cities of the plain and pitching his tent toward Sodom back in chapter 13, verse 12. It began when he looked toward Sodom, chapter 13, verse number 10. And so he pitched his tent toward Sodom in 13, verse 12, and by this time, he's now living in Sodom, chapter 14, verse 12. And folks, if we could take the physical digression of law and make application for our spiritual lives, we would learn that there is a treacherous quicksand for the soul in the attraction to the world and its amusements and its pleasures and its activity and its glamour and its money, you you name it. And initially we look towards Sodom. Then we visit, then we embrace, and this is the classic case of, of what we would call a slippery slope, and it doesn't matter if you were raised in a Christian home, or if you went to a Christian school, or if you're faithful to attend a Bible preaching church. If you are a deacon or a pastor, the reality is that you can't make your home among the wicked and know God's blessing. Read Romans or read Psalm Psalm number one. Now, some might contend that Lot was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, yes. Lot was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And while Abram was in Hebron at the altar in fellowship with God, Lot was in Sodom when his city was at war. The backslider Lot, which brings us then to the hero of our story, and that is the believer, Abram the Hebrew. Number three, the believer, Abram the Hebrew. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eschol and the brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, stop there, what would you have done if you were Abram and you heard this news? Abram could have shrugged his shoulders and said, well, he got what he deserved. That would have been a bit self-righteous. Abram could have shuddered in his boots in fear and said, there's nothing I can do. I, I'm just a farmer. I'm not a fighter. And if the five kings of the Jordan plain, that is the west, can't defend themselves against the four kings of the east, what can I do? That would have been self-preservation. Abram could have suggested negotiations and offered a ransom for Lot. For, after all, money talks, and all you need to do is speak the language. With money, Abram had enough money to buy his nephew back. That would have been self sufficient. But that isn't what happened. We find Abram to be selfless. And in an incredible movement of selflessness and bold faith, Abram went to rescue Lot as a POW. Look at verse 14 again. Now when Abram heard that his brother, specifically his nephew, was taken, his family member taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan, far to the north. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, far north. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And that quickly, Lot is saved. We might at first blush consider Abram to to be foolish or we could say that Abram was full of faith and the power of faith driving him to take this action, but we're not done with Genesis 14 yet. In fact, I would suggest that the Bible narrative in verses one through 11 as we stumbled through it did not climax in verses 14 to 16 as I just read, but really are recorded to bring us now to verses 17 to 24. Upon Abram's return from battle, after achieving the victory and rescuing his rascal of a nephew Lot, Abram had two meetings. He had two encounters, one with the king of Sodom and the other with the king of Salem. And first, let's look at the the meeting with the king of Salem. Salem is another name for Jerusalem. And and I'm calling this a significant meeting with the king of Salem. And, And really that's the understatement of the day, a significant meeting. Look at verse number 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, Abram, and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, okay? Who is this man, Melchizedek, who met with Abram? He has no recorded history, ancestry, genealogy, birth, or death, He's called the King of Salem or King of Jerusalem. He was a priest of the Most High of God, the Most High, and, and of this Bible character, folks, we have no other knowledge. He comes out of the middle of nowhere. He pays homage to Abram, teaches Abram about God, introduces a new name for God, El Elyon, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. There in verse twenty-one. And this significant meeting with the king of Salem or Jerusalem, it's, it's curious for, for a couple of reasons. One, out of the pagan world of the Canaanites emerges one who believes and worships the very same God as Abram. In fact, this is probably the first non-family member of Abram that, that Abram has met who is a worshiper of the God of, of heaven. And he goes further to pronounce a blessing on Abram, the one whom God had already blessed. So evidently we can deduce that there must have been some revelation from God to other men other than Abram if Melchizedek was to know the God of Abram. Could it be that here God was already calling out a people for his name from among the Gentiles of the Old Testament even though the text rarely pauses from from its pursuit of the plan of God through the Hebrew people for, for Israel? We have a Gentile already acknowledging God. And, and here Abram acknowledges the, the priestly dignity of this priest king by giving him a, a tenth of the spoils of war, a, a tithe. And, and so we, we wonder of, of this man Melchizedek. The, the Bible text here treats him as a real historical character. Who touched the life the life of a, a real patriarch Abram, after a real battle against a real enemy, and so we accept the the histor- historical reality of of this narrative, but then suddenly mysteriously he, he appears and he, he disappears, and it just provokes our curiosity about this man, Melchizedek. The scriptures will then go on to reference Melchizedek a couple times. Once in Psalm 110 and then again in the book of Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're not going to turn there this morning. That study is beyond the scope of our purpose this morning. But, but in brief, Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 link Jesus Christ to Melchizedek and Christ's priesthood to Melchizedek's priesthood as opposed to Aaron and the famous Levitical line of of priests in Israel. and Because of those scriptures, theologians would suggest that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. More than that, Melchizedek may have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, what we'd call a Christophany, the significant meeting of Abram returning from rescuing Lot with the king of, of Salem. But then there's a, another meeting. Look at verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Chador, Laomer, and the kings who were with him. Jump to verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourselves. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. Aner, Escol, Mamre let them take their portion. Abram had a sinister meeting with the king of Sodom If the king of Salem was a type of Christ we could argue that the king of Sodom was a type of Satan. Now follow this. The king of Salem offered Abram blessing of the most high God. The king of Sodom offered Abram the bounty and the spoils of war. And Abram declined, citing the new name for for God that he had just learned in verse 22. El Elyon, God most high. Abram wanted nothing from Sodom or from Sodom's king or from Sodom's name in verse 23. And folks, that is the power of faith. Let me explain. God wants to bless you God wants to bless his people, whether Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church, just like he did through Melchizedek here in Genesis 14, a type of Christ, if not a pre-incarnate Christ. However, at the same time, there is another who makes an offer, a competing offer. And how does one discern between what is the blessing of God and what is the offer of the world? Because Abram knew of the wicked nature of the people of Sodom and their, their leader, the king of Sodom, Abram discerned that the king of Sodom's motive might be dangerous to the reputation of God's program going forward into the future. And Abram didn't want the king of Sodom to have any occasion to claim responsibility for the blessing. You see it there in verse 23. In fact, I would submit to you that the greatest threat in this entire narrative is not the battle between the kings of the east and the west. It's not the capture of backslidden Lot. It's not the vulnerability of Abraham and his small band of servants that went to the north to rescue Lot. But the the greatest threat is the subtle threat of the offer of the king of Sodom for that offer would confuse worldly benefits and divine blessings. You catch that? The matter with the king of Sodom was critical because the reputation of God was at stake. Or if I might put it this way, the unintended consequences that could result from Abram receiving gifts from the king of Sodom. And folks, I would say to you this morning that the people of God may win physical battles or political battles. Or even experience spiritual victory, but the limelight of that success, they they may be tempted then to give glory to some pagan pretender who would delight to rob God of the credit for that success. And the source of our victory and the spoils of our victory ought to be credited to the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, not to public policy or a politician or some economic change, or some effort of man. The power of faith is the ability to decline what the world offers in exchange for the promises of God. I think of Moses. In Hebrews 11, the Bible says that by faith, Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward, the unseen. That's the eyes of faith and the power of faith. Bible commentator Alan Ross has written a summary of this, and I I should have copied it for you in your notes. I, I failed to do that, but I'll project it for you on the screen He says Adam clearly and solidly refused the author of the king of Sodom. He did not want Sodom to take the advantage to say that he was the one who made Abram rich, especially knowing what he did about the people of Sodom. Abram wanted something far more enduring than the spoils of war. He wanted the fulfillment of God's promise that would be miraculous and enduring. Alan Ross goes on to say, Melchizedek's renewal of the word of blessing must have excited Abram's faith so that he could resist this easy opportunity for blessing. The priest's words reminded Abram that he would rise in prosperity and indicated by whom he would rise. Abram thus resolved to receive all from God and not a thread from Sodom. The people of God. That's us. We frame our lives so that for all success, joy, comfort, and prosperity, we depend upon God. But it must be a faith like Abram's that will be able to discern what is from God and what is from the world. Folks, that is the power of faith. And may God give us discernment to recognize what is coming from God's good hand and what is a cheap payout. From the world. This is where it gets hard for us. Because when the world offers us something that we can see, and God offers us something that we cannot see, what's the temptation? The temptation for me is to to reach out and, and claim what the world has offered because I can see it with my eyes of flesh, and I want it here and now. But the power of faith is is that God has called us to wait with eyes of faith for what he has for us in the future. The power of faith comes when we trust in the Lord with all our heart. We don't lean on our own understanding. In all of our ways, we acknowledge him. We let him direct our paths. That is the power of faith. Let's pray. God, give us powerful faith Lord, we know that the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. We know that as we trust your hand, though unseen, that you will accomplish great and mighty things, things that we would never imagine or ever expect. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from the folly of receiving from the world such cheap things, but with faith, we would wait and allow you to lead us forward to what is eternal. I pray, God, that you would help each of us as individuals, corporately as a church, to simply trust and obey. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.